Um, we're going to be continuing our series in Revelation this morning. We're going to be working out of Revelation 2, verses 12 through 17, and we're going to be talking about the church at Pergamum. So if you're physically able to stand with me for the reading of the word, I'd ask you to please do so now. If not, don't worry about it. If you have some reason to stay sitting, please do. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast to my name. And you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on it, a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. This is the word of the Lord to us. Please be seated. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this day. We thank you for this wonderful word that you give us, that you've written us this love letter that we call the Bible to help us understand that you are truly all that we need. Lord, we pray as we spend the next few minutes considering these verses that you've given to us this morning that we would come away with a deeper understanding of your concern for your church and for the purity of your church and your love for us and all the things that we already possess because of what you've done for us. It's in your son's name we pray, amen. So as I mentioned, we're continuing our series in uh, Revelation. And um, right now we're going through chapters 2 and 3, which consist of a series of letters that Jesus writes to the church. Um, you know, a lot of the times when Christians first approach the book of Revelation, this was my experience as a new believer especially, you read the book of Revelation and you don't know what to make out of it. You know, it's really confusing. You're checking the binding, wondering if it's like Dungeons and Dragons. You're reading through it, like trying to figure out what all the symbols mean. Then there's all the people that you see on the internet that tell you they know what all the numbers mean and the secrets of the book, and they're just weird. I mean, we could be honest about that, right? I'm a weirdo, so I could say that. <clears throat> I remember once I heard a, a sermon by Mark Driscoll, and he uh, made this funny comment about all the extreme interpretations that come out when people teach this book. Uh, he talked about how some people see the locusts that are mentioned there, and that they're really helicopters that are attacking the people of God, that the number of the beast is a barcode, it's put on our neck, we're getting swiped at the supermarket like soup cans, just all kinds of weird stuff, Right? But thankfully, I think by now, uh, Rob and Chuck have done a great job of kind of laying out for us that this is actually a very personal letter that Jesus gives to you and I as his church. And it gives us the encouragement and the warnings that we need to continue to walk in faith while we await for his return. Now, the church that we're considering today is one that faced physical persecution well, 
but they also were very challenged by different forms of compromise that crept into the body. But the main point of these scriptures that we're taking a look at is that Jesus' words to you and I as his church remind us that because he's overcome the world, we do not need to compromise our faith in order to continue to exist in it while we wait for him to come back for us. So because Jesus has already overcome the world, there's no need for you and I to fall for temptations to compromise as we wait for his return. So I wanted to do that by going through the three natural parts that are in this text. Uh, First is the encouragement that he gives to the church. The second is the warning that he gives to the church. And then third is the promises that he makes to the church. Uh, Just by way of introduction, just a few comments about the city of Pergamum. It's a city that's located in what we um, now today call modern-day Turkey. And it's not unlike other cities that we've already studied uh, in the book of Revelation already. Pergamum, in, in particular, was a very affluent city in some ways. Um, they were a trend-setting community in some ways. A couple examples of that is that they valued education and uh, well-being. They held those in high virtue. Um, they had a uh, library that was apparently the largest in the ancient world at that time where they had over 200,000 parchment books for people to study. They also held trade and business in high regard, and so the city was filled with different guilds and associations for the different trades, whether it was blacksmithing, baking, whatever it was. Um, they also held uh, health and well-being in high regard, which is something that we really relate to, especially, I think, in Southern California. They worshipped the god of healing called Asclepius. And uh, behind the city, there was a huge hill that was 1,000 feet tall where there was all these different statues to different gods that people could worship. And so if it wasn't the statue to the Greek and Roman gods like Zeus that people were worshipping in the city... It could have been the statue to Asclepius, the god of healing that they were worshiping. Another important piece is that this city was an important power center in the Roman Empire at that time. And Rome as an empire had this vision of itself, that it was going to be an empire that was filled with power, with might, with imperial force, with majesty. And at the very center of that vision that it had for itself was the institution of emperor worship. And people would actually be encouraged and commanded to call Caesar Lord. So they'd say Kaiser Curios. And they'd call Caesar Lord and Savior. In light of all that, when we read this short-term statement that Jesus gives us, that this is the place where Satan dwells, we don't really have to wonder what he's talking about, right? Now, as we mentioned, Pergamon was a city that prided itself on worship of, of different gods, and that was a social norm there. Um, at the street level, the way that this played out is that Pergamum um, would carry out its daily worship in the context of what they did in daily life. And so these guilds, these trade guilds that they had, really consisted of people who would be doing business with one another, selling their goods, selling their trade, but also there would be a patron deity or a patron god. Now, as I talk about this stuff, this should really sound familiar to us in the world that we live in now. We see a lot of different religions that have a god. There's a saint for everything. There's a god for everything that you can worship in this world. Pergamum was designed and operated exactly on that premise. And so at a street level, if you were going to be a good member of the guild, you were going to participate in the spiritual feast to the god of that guild. And you were going to enter into acts of worship to the God of that guild, along with all your peers. Now, in terms of the persecution, the encouragement that Jesus gives, we have 
we don't really have a lot from Scripture. There's very little detail um, known about the persecution that was happening to the church and to Antipas in particular. Um, a couple of things that seem obvious, though, is that the example of Antipas is given to illustrate what happens when Satan is able to use the powers of the word, world to attack believers. But it also helps us see what happens when believers are willing to forfeit their personal rights and even sometimes their lives for the sake of the faith that they had in Jesus. And you know, I think that Jesus is encouraging them and speaking to you and I because he wants to remind us that this really is the thing that gives us any power in the world. It was the thing that gave the ancient church the power to influence the culture. As people would interact with these weird monotheists, these people that believed in one God called Jesus, they would see them and see that they were so radically transformed as a result of knowing Jesus and calling him Lord and Savior that they were willing to forfeit their own rights and their own freedoms for the sake of serving others. And people were converted as a result of that. You know, that's the same for you and I today. It's not so much what I do, it's the way that I live out my faith as an expression of gratitude for what God has already done for me that really affects other people. <clears throat> you know, Jesus is encouraging and commending this church for holding fast under the pressure of physical persecution. When it came to, and I think what this text is talking about is when it came to who Jesus was, the fact that he alone was Lord and Savior, not Caesar or any other God, the church at Pergamum held fast. They would not waver in that, even to the point of physical death. But what's also interesting about this count is that because we know so little about Antipas, it seems that history largely has forgotten about him. But the beautiful thing about this passage is that it reminds us that Jesus did not. The world may have forgotten about Antipas a few days after he died, but Jesus did not forget about him. And that's a great reminder for you and I that as we go through life, God knows and cares about every single event in our lives, especially when we're persecuted for carrying out our faith. I've been, uh, I noticed Chuck did an analogy from World War II, so I'm going to carry on the tradition here, see if we can keep it going. I've been watching a show on World War II lately, and I was watching an episode where it talked about the Russian military and the tactics that they employed um, in the second half of the war. And what they would do to break out against the German front lines is that they would bring an onslaught of overwhelming numbers and air superiority to pressure the front line and to get it to break. And when that front line didn't break, what they would do is they would send the real attack, which would be a flank maneuver that came from an unexpected direction. And what we're seeing at the Church of Pergamum and what happens constantly with the church is the very same thing spiritually. When Satan performs a frontal assault, a physical persecution on the church, and that fails, he does a flanking maneuver. And he comes in and he offers us, as God's people, ways to compromise that don't seem very significant but really cause us to forfeit our witness and our testimony. And that brings us to the second point, the warning that it gives. While Jesus commends them for the faithful testimony under the pressure of even martyrdom, he also gives them a warning about the dangers that were already existing within the church. So in order to understand what the temptation to compromise consisted of, uh, it's helpful to have a working reference of what he's talking about in verses 14 and 15 when he mentions Balaam. 
and he uses it to describe the group, the Nicolaitans that were in the church. So Balaam was an Old Testament prophet, really a con man. And he was approached by the king of Moab to figure out a way to cause the Israelites who were traveling through his land to stumble and to defeat them. And while Balaam was unable to do that, God thwarts his plan several times. In the end, what he does is he approaches the king of Moab and he tells him, this is the way that you'll defeat Israel. As if you send women to live amongst them and the women will bring their foreign gods. And so that's what he did. And so among God's people crept these foreigners and they brought with them their foreign gods. The Israelites married them and eventually they began to worship their gods along with that. So the group, the Nicolaitans, Jesus is describing them in the same way that he described Balaam. The group, the Nicolaitans, really essentially were teaching that compromising with the culture that the church of Pergamum lived in was acceptable, that there was nothing wrong with that. The word Nicolaitans literally means the people destroyers. And so what he's saying is that this group crept into the midst of the church to destroy the church from the inside out through compromise. So that happened in a couple of different ways. Here, that involved worshiping idols, uh, worshiping the emperor of Rome as a god, um, engaging in these feasts and their trades. Um, Another aspect was that they would go to the temples of these foreign gods and there would be prostitutes and they would have sex with these prostitutes. And really what that signified was friendship and fellowship with that foreign god. And so these Nicolaitans were going to the church and saying, look, it's hard living in the world, we get that. But it's really not wrong for you to do what's happening in the world around you as long as you just keep testifying that Jesus is Lord and Savior. And so that compromise was really beginning to take root in the church. So for believers who lived in Pergamum, any success in their respective trade would be tied to the worship of idols associated with the craft that they practiced. Anything that was done in the trade guilds of their day would automatically involve both the acknowledgement and the approval of the God that was associated with it. So what were the consequences if they decided that they wouldn't participate in those feasts? It meant that they wouldn't have the respect in the business of their peers. So it affected them in a very direct, material way. If you did conform and you paid your dues to the guild, you would benefit. People were given acceptance, affirmation, the business of your peers and your trade. But if you didn't conform, you were ostracized and cut off from that trade. You were cut off from the society around you. You were considered not good enough to be a member in good reputation. You see, I think all this was leading the church at Pergamum to be willing to compromise the truth of the gospel in the face of cultural pressure and begin to think that it's okay to rearrange the faith to accommodate cultural norms. And that's something that you and I face today, every day when we walk out into the world. Christians are hated more than any other reason because of the testimony that they give about who Jesus is, that he alone is God. They're hated because they live by the one concept that cannot be uh, tolerated in a pluralistic society, and that's of orthodoxy, one of right belief. The confession that there is truth, and that God's given it to us as his creation, and that we're accountable to it, is deeply offensive and considered intolerant. And you and I see that as well as the church at Pergamite saw in their day. 
The word for denying fundamental truths about God is called heresy. You know, that's a very unpopular word in the church today. Nobody likes to hear that. Nobody likes to hear people use it. But in its essence, heresy really is just a lie about God. It's just a lie about who God is. So what we see here for the believers at Pergamum and us today in the 21st century is that underneath all the cultural pressures to change, behind all the temptations of things that they can enjoy if they simply compromise, was the reality that Jesus is writing them and he's reminding you and I as well that we do not need to lie about who he is. We do not need to lie about him. When we do, the tragedy is is that we rob God of his glory. And we also rob other people of the opportunity of seeing just how beautiful he is through our faith. You know, Pergamon was not unlike Southern California. I think we probably see that by now. You can worship anything you want in today's culture. There's religion galore. Right up the street, there's a place called the Self-Realization Fellowship. And uh, before I got saved, I used to go there, and they'd have guided meditations. And at the front of the room, they'd have a picture of Buddha, a picture of Jesus, a picture of Gandhi, a picture of the yogi who started the Self-Realization Fellowship, because they all equally held truth that was all equally good. That's right down the street. The polytheism that we think only existed in Revelation is all around us every day, right? Now, you know, our counter might be as you and I go through our daily lives, um, working at our jobs, going to school, carrying out whatever responsibilities we have. Our counter to that might be, look, I don't do that. I get it. There's a lot of pressure from the world. I've experienced it. It's hard. I've made mistakes. But I certainly don't sacrifice a Big Mac to the patron god of blacksmithing or anything like that. But I think the compromise that tempted the church at Pergamum is present all around us today in in very subtle ways. You see, the basic premise is that if we approve of things in our surrounding culture, things that counter scripture, we'll be given what we think we want and need from life. For them at Pergamum, it could have been financial security, the good standing in their respective fields, uh, continued access to business and trade. For you and I, I think what that looks like is that when we go out into the workplace, we go out into social settings, we live out our faith publicly as Christians, the pressure that we encounter is that we're told, look, we're all reasonable here in the world. If you're just willing to set aside the aspects of your faith that we really think are intolerant and a little bigoted, and really narrow-minded, we'll all get along fine if you're just willing to do that. I think that every single believer in any age faces the cultural temptation to let something other than Jesus define us. An easy diagnostic question for us to ask to get to the bottom of that is to ask ourselves if we've ever thought that we're better than other people because of what we do, what we have, or who we're associated with. Or conversely, if we consider ourselves worse than other people because of what we lack and what we think we need. Now you might say, I don't do that. But every one of us in this room has been to high school or school. And that's exactly how it works. We're constantly judging ourselves by other people. Where do we fit in? in the strata of life. 
regardless of which side of the coin we land on, whether we think that we're better or that we're worse, really what we're doing is we're buying into the guilds of this world. We're letting the guilds of this world define who we are and give us our sense of self-worth. And also, to the extent that we desire to be accepted by the guild, to the extent that we continue to pay dues, to be included, uh, to be affirmed, to be satisfied for our own sake, we'll never have the space in our hearts to care and love for others. And we'll also never have the space in our hearts to love and follow Jesus. (coughs) Our entire life will simply become about us. All the relationships that we have, everything that we do, eventually is really centered around getting what we think we need. Now amazingly, despite all of this, despite how we all are guilty of doing this at different points in our life, um, Jesus comes and writes this letter to us to remind us that as his people, what we have in him is infinitely better than anything we may find in the world. You know, it's interesting to note here in this text that when Jesus says that he's coming, when he says repent, or else I will come soon and make war. He doesn't say repent, or I'm coming to make war with you as the church. He says repent, or else I will come and make war with those among you who lead you astray. Instead, in the last verse, what Jesus does is remind us of the promises that we already possess in him that we cannot lose. Uh, Two things there in particular. He talks about something called the hidden manna, And then he talks about believers receiving a hidden, a a white stone with a new name on it. And if you're not familiar with the Old Testament, hidden manna may sound like a weird thing, but really what it was, was uh, in the book of Exodus, when God liberated the nation of Israel, he led the people out of Egyptian slavery, and he led them through the desert on the way to a land that he promised to them that was full of blessings. And during that journey, every day he would cause supernatural food called manna to drop down from heaven. And so they would have the daily sustenance that they needed directly from God. It would only last for a day, and then the next day he would give them exactly what they needed again, and the next day he would give them exactly what they needed again. Spiritually as well, what he was teaching his people is that in him, they would have everything they needed for life. That if they followed him, he would give them everything that they needed. And they wouldn't have to go to anything in this world. <clears throat> you see, Jesus is telling you and I as, as the church that we could stop trying to fill ourselves with the things of the world. Because in him, we can already be satisfied. I, was, uh, I actually had to verify this with Janie. We were in the kitchen a couple weeks ago, and uh, she was making dinner. And I was sitting there just absolutely demolishing a whole bag of potato chips right before we ate. And that, if you don't know, my wife is a dietitian, so that's particularly offensive <laughs> to her. <laughs> and I'm sitting there like a, like a monkey just shoving it in my face, waiting to eat. She says, hey, do you ever notice when you eat those simple carbs that are loaded with salt that your body just wants more and more and more and more, but you're never filled up? And, you know, as I was writing this message, I thought about that, and I thought, you know, that's exactly what compromise and idolatry is like. It offers, the world offers you and I a false sense of being filled, but it never satisfies us. And so we're constantly going back and going back for more and more and more, never satisfied. 
You see, the hidden manna really is representative of our fellowship with Jesus, of our relationship with him and how that sustains us. Jesus speaks to this in John 6, uh, right at the account of him feeding 5,000 people, a group of people approach him and ask him a bunch of questions. And Jesus responds, he says, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures the eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. He goes on later in the chapter to call himself the bread of life and actually compares himself to the manna that God gave to the people in the desert. In verses 48 through 51, he says, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. You see, Jesus is reminding us that if we follow him, we don't need to be taken in by anything in this world because we already have eternal satisfaction with him. You know, the beautiful thing about this is that it gives you and I the thing that we need, the power that we need to do the most, and that's to learn how to follow Jesus without compromising. And this honestly may be my favorite part of this text, is that what God is saying is that Despite how often you and I screw up, how many times we fail, how many times we compromise, how many times we tell a little white lie about who he is and what he means to us, he continually works through us to teach us how not to compromise and follow him faithfully. So we grow in grace. We grow by his grace and by his spirit. We learn to follow him through this life without compromising our testimony. And that leads to the white stone with a new name on it. You know, it's, it's, it's fair to ask, you know, we live in a more casual culture, what to ask what's in a name, you know, what does a name really mean? And even today, your name tells people something about you. When people know you, if they hear your name, there's an image and association that comes to mind for them. Now, this was especially true in the ancient world. Um, in many ways, your name and the association that it, that it brought Uh, not only communicated your identity, it also communicated your status in the world. Uh, Some of you know my story, some of you don't. Growing up, I was an alcoholic and a drug addict and a criminal for a good number of years, probably a few too many, considering how my brain works these days. But in the town where I grew up, my reputation was so poor for being dishonest and scandalous and being a backstabber and manipulator that if you wanted to lay off a crime, you could mention my name, and it would stick. People would be like, I think Brian White did that. Yeah, that's right. He would do that, wouldn't he? Um, In the neighborhood where I grew up, my part of the town where I grew up in my neighborhood, one of my friends, towards the end of my addiction, one of my friends uh, went to the stop sign, and underneath stop, he wrote my name. So every time he drove around the corner, you would read, Stop Brian White. (laughs) You know, it's an interesting picture that Revelation is painting for us here. Um, In the ancient world, white stones were used for various reasons, but I think the two that are relevant for what Jesus is telling you and I this morning is, um, first, white stones were commonly given to people as an acquittal of guilt. So they would give them a white stone, and that told them, this is a not guilty verdict. 
And you know, that's a wonderful blessing for you and I because what Jesus is telling us is that while the world accuses you and the world condemns you, you stand not guilty before me. And here it is. This is your acquittal. The other neat thing about how a white stone was used in the ancient world was that it would be given to people who were victors in whatever athletic event that they participated in. And so they would give white stones, and that would be your entrance ticket, into a feast or a banquet for the victors. And so people who overcame whatever respective obstacles they faced in their challenge would be given this white stone, and then they'd be able to attend a feast where they would be with all the other victors and enjoy the success of their glory. You see, the reference to white stone with a new name is really about you and me and our identification with Jesus about who he is and what he's done. In the Old Testament, we see this. The prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah 62 and 65, he speaks about God's promises of restoration to his people. And in that promise of restoration, he says that God will give them a new name that signifies their association with him as his people. We see that again in Revelation. We heard it last week, and then two more times it's mentioned. In Revelation 3.12, it says, To the one who conquers, I will write on him the name of my God. In Revelation 14.1 and 22.4, as John sees the vision of the resurrected Jesus surrounded by all the redeemed saints, he records, And they all had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. You see, you and I will be identified by Christ's name. We're not going to be given a secret Dungeons and Dragons name that nobody knows but us and Jesus. We will be identified just in the same way that God identifies Christ. Because our identity is in him and our association is with him alone. You see, Jesus is reminding us that we'll be with him, that we'll be victors at the banquet in heaven. That's what he's talking about in Revelation 19.9. He writes, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. That's a beautiful promise for you and I. Because what it tells us is that no matter what happens in this life, your seat at the heavenly banquet of the victors is guaranteed. Nothing can take that away from you. There's nothing you can do to lose that. There's nothing that Satan can do to rob us of that promise. There's no power in the world that can stop that from coming to pass. You see, the reality is is that to the extent that we try to fit into the guilds of our lives to get what we want, we'll always be left with this lingering sense of hunger and a need for satisfaction that we don't get from anything in this world. C.S. Lewis touches on this quite well on mere Christianity. He writes, People are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger, and there's such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim, and there's such a thing as water. People feel sexual desire, and there's such a thing as sex. But if I find within myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, it does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably, 
earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it to suggest the real thing. And if that is so, I must take care on the one hand never to despise or to be unthankful for these earthly blessings, and on the other, to never mistake them for something else of which they are merely a copy or an echo or an image. I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find till after death, and I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main object of my life to press on to that country and to help others to do the same. You see, behind all the things that you and I do to satisfy our own desires in this life is this drive. And what we experience in the world when we do that is just a cheap cheap imitation of the significance and the meaning and the relationship that we long for. Underneath everything, what we're yearning for is to be fully known, to be fully loved, and to be fully accepted. And to know that in our hearts. Jesus has promised to you and I in the book of Revelation and all of Scripture is that we already have that and so much more in Him. To the extent that we realize that Jesus gives us our name and our identity, we will no longer have to pay any dues to the guilds of this world because we've already been accepted. And seriously, think about that. Who cares about what the people at the office think when the maker of heavens and earth loves you and you're the object of his affection? It doesn't even matter. We will no longer need to go to other things because we see that in Jesus, we're already fully embraced and we're already fully loved. You see, Jesus is the true manna for you and I. And in him, we will never need to try and satisfy our own hunger again. And he's the one that gives us a new name. And if you know that, you know that you will never have to be lonely again. Amen? Amen. Let's uh, take a moment and pray. If I could, I want to ask you guys just to go along with me. This may seem hokey or goofy to you, but just play along with me. On the count of three, I'd like us all just to close our eyes and take a super deep breath. Okay? One, two, three. Lord, we thank you for the promises that you give to us. We thank you that you write us this love letter that reminds us that although we stumble and although we constantly make a mess of things in this world, that your promises to us are true and that they will not fail. We thank you that you remind us of the things that are a danger to us because you love us so much and you're a good father. We thank you that you remind us in the weakness of our souls and the temptations that we face that the future that we have in you outweighs anything that we can experience in this world and that we can walk with you through this life knowing that where we are going is much more beautiful and meaningful and fulfilling than anything we'll ever experience here and now. We thank you most of all for Jesus, the lover of our souls, who's the giver of every good gift that we have. Amen.